You may be seated. Good morning. Ooh, you're sort of sleepy today. Good morning. <laughs> My name is Nan Clark, and I help out here with pastoral care and um, visitation, and sometimes help with liturgy. Uh, so today we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments entitled, Among American Gods. We've been making the case that these commandments are God's response to a disordered world. And certainly in America, that disorder touches each of our lives on a regular basis. So today we're looking at the fourth commandment. And uh, if you'll join me in prayer, then we'll read the commandment and dive in. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have given it to us. We thank you that it is a good word, and most of all, that it is a living word, and that it continually speaks into our minds, our hearts, our lives, and shapes us into the people that you would have us to be. Father, would you send your spirit now to make this word live in our hearts? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, our scripture reading is the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. You'll find it on page 10, and uh, let's read together. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, I have to start with a confession. <laughs> I struggle with the concept of Sabbath. We usually talk about it in terms of ceasing our regular work and resting in some way. But this concept always raises questions for me. If God rested on the seventh day of creation, was it because he was tired after all his creating work? And if he needed a nap on the seventh day, what did he do on the eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh days and all the subsequent ones? When I think about resting on the Sabbath, I inevitably go to this place of asking myself, well, what can I do on the Sabbath? Can I play golf? Can I read a novel? Can I watch a movie? Can I go for a walk? Can I work in my garden? Things like that. But I know I'm not alone with these questions. I've had conversations with some of you who struggle to figure out how to make Sabbath rest work with all the complications of modern life. For some of us, our failure to observe Sabbath even makes us feel guilty. Last Sunday after church, Boyd and I were at Publix, and we bumped into a third member there. A third member. <laughs> Boyd mentioned that I was preaching on the Sabbath this week, 
And our first response, all of us, was to laughingly say, well, I guess we sure won't be at Publix next Sunday. <laughs> but that gives you some insight into the kinds of things I'm talking about. So when Derek sent up a sign-up sheet for this sermon series, I purposely chose the fourth commandment. I saw, as, I saw it as an opportunity to dig in and think deeply about what Sabbath rest means. And so I'd like to share with you some of the things I've learned. And as we do, we'll look first at Sabbath rest at creation, then Sabbath rest in the fourth commandment, and then finally Sabbath rest at the time of Jesus. So let's go back to Genesis where it all belongs, or all begins. We'll look at Genesis 2, 1 to 4. Um, you have to remember that when this story was originally written, there were no chapters and verses. And so I don't know why they chose to put this part in uh, chapter two, but this really is the culmination of chapter one. It's the whole point. Um, so we, it's always good to read it in remembering that it flows from the first chapter of Genesis. So let's read it together. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the works of creating that he had done. So God finishes his work of creating in six days, and on the seventh day he rests. The word for rest in this text is Shabbat, which means ceasing, and it's the word from which we get Sabbath. So all we know is that on the seventh day, God's rest means that he stops or ceases his creation work. So now let's go to the second command, or the fourth commandment, and look at that. It breaks down easily into three parts. First of all is the what? is to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Then we have the how. They're not to work for six days. Um, none of them, not even their animals or the foreigners who are in their land. And then finally, we have the why of the commandment. Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. So, curiously enough, the word for rest here is not Shabbat. It's a Hebrew word, word nuach, and nuach has the sense of resting in terms of remaining or dwelling. So on the seventh day, God takes up residence or dwells in his creation. So we have a clue here on how to interpret God's rest on the seventh day. It doesn't mean the cessation of creational activity for physical rest. This suggests that ancient people thought about rest in a different way than we do. It's helpful to remember that God communicated to his ancient people in words and images and, and ideas that were part of their ancient worldview so that they could understand what he was communicating to them. They made sense to them, but typically we struggle because they don't make sense to us unless we can enter into their worldview. 
And when we do that, we get more perspective on what God's rest means. For example, we tend to read Genesis 1 through a scientific lens, but the ancient Israelites would have heard the creation narrative as a temple-building story. For six days, God builds his temple, bringing order out of the chaos of the deep waters in Genesis 1.1. On the seventh day, when all is in place, God enters the temple and dwells there. Here's a way to understand it. When Boyd and I moved to Richmond, the movers arrived and they unloaded all the boxes. Then the next day they came back and they unpacked all the boxes. But they just took everything out of the boxes and put it anywhere and everywhere they they could find a spot. Um, And everything was in chaos after they left. For the next three days, Boyd and I went room by room and we had to take all our stuff and put it in its place. We had to bring order out of all the chaos. And the goal of that work wasn't so that we could take a nap, although I have to admit, we really did need a nap. But it was so that we could take up residence and begin our life in our new home in Richmond. In a similar way, God takes up residence in his home or temple, but his temple is the entire cosmos. Under his good rule, sun, moon, and stars provide light and mark the seasons. Plants and trees provide food. Fish, birds, and animals multiply, and humans fill the earth as they rule over it. The seventh day is the culmination of the creation story. God does what all gods did in the ancient world. He rests in his temple so that he will be present to rule over the creation and be in relationship with the people for whom he's made this world function. God ceases his work of ordering and preparing the creation and now begins the work of reigning over it. Everything and everyone knows what they're supposed to do and now it's go time for this newly created world. So this gives us some insight into what God's rest entails. And it answers my question about what God does after the seventh day. If we understand God's rest in terms of his presence and rule, it makes sense that the seventh day is an endless or perpetual day. That's why there's no mention of any day after the seventh. So God blesses his creation project so that it moves forward, and his presence sanctifies or makes this temple, this creation temple, holy. So can you see how God's rest is the goal of the creation story? Life centered around the presence and reign of God. It's a never-ending Sabbath where God is not inactive, but active, not disengaged, but engaged. So now, let's go back to the fourth commandment. By the time we get to the Exodus story, the fall has happened, and humans are banished from God's presence, no longer fully participating in his rest. The world has become a place of disorder and dysfunction. 
Now imagine if we read the Exodus account as a recreation story. God rescues his people out of the tyranny of slavery in Egypt and promises to give them rest in the land to which he will lead them. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful picture of abundant provision. God will give them rest from their enemies, not so they can relax, but so they can live and function and flourish in the land. God will be present with them in the cloud and the pillar of fire that accompanies them on the journey, then in the tabernacle, and ultimately in the temple in Jerusalem. Can you hear the echoes of creation rest here? God hasn't abandoned his creation project, and the Exodus narrative is only one part of the story of how he will reclaim the whole creation as his dwelling place. So this is the context for the fourth commandment. God institutes the Sabbath observance as a remembering day. They are to remember God's rest, what they have lost, what they have regained in part, and what God at some future point will fully restore. In a fallen and disordered world, Sabbath is a concrete acknowledgement that by their own efforts and work, they cannot enter God's rest. So in that way, Sabbath observance not only looks back to the creation story, but it's a sign that points forward for the time when people will live in the full presence of God. Sadly, the Israelites never experienced God's rest in the land, not fully. They repeatedly refuse to be faithful to the terms of the covenant that God establishes with them. By ignoring the Sabbath, they are acting as though they can gain God's rest by their own efforts. And so, as a result, God ultimately leaves the temple in Jerusalem and lets Israel's enemies take them off into captivity. But happily, the story doesn't end there. Jesus gives us a new lens through which we can view the Sabbath. By the first century, some religious leaders have built a complex system of rules around Sabbath observance. The result is that Sabbath has become a burden for the people. Not surprisingly, Jesus had many run-ins with the Pharisees, who were the self-appointed enforcers of these rules. He has the nerve to heal people on the Sabbath. He dares to tell a man to take up his mat and walk. By their rules, he's encouraging work on the Sabbath. Jesus bursts all their categories when he responds that it is never wrong to do the work of God on the Sabbath. In fact, he condemns them because they have neglected to do God's work on the Sabbath. They've neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness because they've been so focused on all their rules. They totally miss the point that Jesus is making when he heals the lame and the blind, when he liberates those who are oppressed. Jesus is undoing the disorder of this world. He is actually bringing God's rest 
fulfilling what Sabbath was pointing to for so long, God dwelling with his people. So imagine the delight of the people when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If the Sabbath was a sign, Jesus is saying that he's the one to whom it was pointing. And now he is here, and he's inviting people to find rest in him. In Jesus, God is restoring his presence and power over the disorder of the world. He invites people not to relax with him, but to participate with him in his work, to bear the yoke of a gentle and a humble Lord rather than the hard yoke of the self-righteous religious leaders. They cannot achieve their rest through their own religious performance. It is a gift of God's grace. Then after Pentecost, the disciples begin to understand that Jesus' death was the defeat of the kingdom of darkness and all the disorder associated with it. His resurrection signaled the inauguration of the new creation, the beginning of the restoration of God's cosmic rule. Now we have a fuller picture of God's rest. In Jesus, God, in Jesus, God is bringing the creation project to its intended goal. When we trust Jesus, we actually enter God's rest, what we call God's eschatological rest, the rest of the age to come that is already present in Jesus. But we're not fully there yet. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we who have believed in Jesus enter God's rest, but it is not yet the fullness of God's rest. We await Jesus' return when we will live in the fullness of God's presence. God will once again be at rest in his creation temple. So what have I learned about Sabbath rest? First of all, when it comes to rest, I've been asking all the wrong questions. Sabbath rest is not about do's and don'ts. It's about the realization of God's purposes for his creation. It's about the rest that Jesus invites his followers to participate in. And it's about the promise of a future when God's creation purposes and his rest will be established for all eternity. And for a rule maker and breaker like me, this is good news. This is a liberating promise. So how does this speak to our American gods? I think the God that drives so many of us is control. So much of what we do is an effort to gain control. Control over our work, our bodies, our health, our minds, our kids, our homes, our futures. Life can seem like an elusive search for control and certainty. The promise of God's Sabbath rest is a challenge to our desires for control. 
Unlike the Israelites, because of Jesus, we can actually live daily in God's Sabbath rest. I've been seeing, as I've been studying this last while about Sabbath, how much I don't live in that rest, and I'm learning to do it more. What helps me is remembering the rest I have in Jesus. When I feel stress, I quietly remind myself that I have entered into God's rest. When I'm striving for control, I stand back and remind myself that Jesus invites me to enter once again into his rest. When I'm worried or fearful, I remember God's rest and lean into it. I'm learning that I can live in God's rest every day, no matter what I'm doing, working or resting. Even when our dog comes in, as he did at 7 o'clock this morning, covered in mud, I can remind myself of God's rest. So my encouragement to each of you today would be to take time each day to remember God's Sabbath rest. That's what it means to remember the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your invitation to us to enter into God's rest. We thank you that uh, you are faithful in all that you've done. And Lord, we confess that so often we fail to enter your rest. Forgive us and draw us, encourage us to each day remember the rest that we have in you. Amen.